Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Um, let's just address it and call it what it is. My wife's out of town, and so I have a mustache. All right. Can't promise it'll be here for long, but we have it today. She's back tomorrow. So here we go. Um, I, I do want to just jump into this Exodus series. Last week, as we kind of left it off, um, what we saw was Moses has received this word from the Lord, and he's, he's coming back to give that news that God has come to save his people to Pharaoh. And as Pharaoh encounters that news, if you remember his response, his response in Exodus chapter five is, who is this Lord that I should serve him? Like, who is this Lord that I have to be obedient to him? See, Pharaoh was God in his own eye. And so for anyone to say, hey, God is making this request to you that you need to honor. Pharaoh's response is just like any good old American response, I guess, right? Just, okay, well, what, what is it that you want me to do? Why should I listen to you, you know? Um, and this is, this is a, a part of the story where I think we could just move on really quick because we're about to get into the plagues and God's about to show us exactly who he is. And that's the refrain of the plagues that you're gonna hear over and over again. Pharaoh going, who is this God? And, and the refrain that you're gonna see in each plague is so that he would know who God is, right? Um, but before we move into that, uh, there's kind of a tough topic that I want to wrestle with today for you all. See, um, I can just, I can be really honest with you guys, uh, pretty secure in my parenting at this point. Uh, not a perfect parent, but you know, it, it is what it is. My kids are awesome. I love them. And uh, Katie's been out of town for the week. She's on a work trip. And, uh, you know, so that effectively, parents in the room, I'll just for you to say this next time. Uh, the TV's done a lot of babysitting for me. Can I get an amen from a parent somewhere? Um <laughs> And so, you know, we've, yes, I've seen Moana like 58 times, um, but Haven, especially like the other two kids are in school, the older two kids are in school, Harper and Harrison um, are gone most of the day and then Haven's in preschool. So she's just got some time where, you know, just listen, I love her. I just like every now and then I'm just like recruiting Moana to give me a break. You know, I don't feel bad about that. Um, but here's, here's like what happens when, when Haven's watching a movie, she's always wanting to skip the scary parts. Right, so I'm just gonna go all in on Moana for just a sec. If you haven't seen it, I, I don't really apologize. Um, it's an amazing movie, it's an amazing movie. Um, really, there's, there's this scary figure in the movie called Taka. Taka's like this lava monster, right? Um, Taka is who has to be overcome. Uh, yeah, I see some like just giggles right now. It's like, why is he doing this? It'll all make sense, okay? It's for a point, um, I promise, mostly. So. Moana's got to like conquer. She's she recruits Maui's help to restore the heart of Tefiti, right? Tefiti was this beautiful uh, creator of life for everything. And don't just spare the emails, okay? Like I know it's like some crazy mystical story, uh, but it's just, it's, it's animation and it's a good story at the end of the day. So um, Moana goes and, and Haven, every time like Taka comes up, this lava monster kind of comes up. She's like, I want to skip, like it's scary, too scary. I want to skip it. Um, and what I realized as I was kind of preparing for this message was, yeah, but you know, like if we skip, uh, saying this to Haven, right? The three-year-old, of course. I'm like, you realize if we skip the scary parts of the story, the beautiful redemptive parts at the end of the story, like when Moana actually restores the heart, she realizes it is Taka that has had her heart stolen and she's actually defeated, right? It's just like this beautifully redemptive moment in the movie. And I'm like, well, if you, if you pull the scary parts out of the redemptive story, the beautiful parts aren't as beautiful. She doesn't get it because she's three, you know what I mean? So we, just, we didn't even really have this conversation. I'm just saying, 
That's what happens. Like if you want to just dodge the hard parts of the story, uh, ultimately, I think you're going to rob yourself of some of the beauty, even in the mystery of the redemptive parts. And so what we encounter in Exodus is this idea and this reality, I'll say, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. How many of you have wrestled with this at some point or another in your Christian walk? That's okay. I mean, you can be honest with it. I think a lot of us have, right? Um, the idea that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and we're going to see here in, in Romans chapter 9, we're actually going to step out of Exodus for the most part today and look at Romans chapter 9 to see like God actually raised up Pharaoh so that he might destroy him to show his glory. And that doesn't often sit well with us. See, uh, this conversation, really, if we're going to pull, pull the layers all the way back, it's a conversation of, is God sovereign or is man free? And it's this conversation of predestination versus, versus uh, free will. How many of you, like you've, you've shared cups of coffee with people, you've had conversation around this topic before. Is God sovereign? I'm asking the question, is God sovereign? Is man, does man have some will, some willpower to make his and her decisions? So we have a problem here, don't we? Because at what point, and really what we're going to ask the question is, when does God step in and get involved, especially around being saved? Does, does God save or does man save? And so what we, what we recognize is that uh, theologically, the positions, the two kind of camps that are going to camp out around this topic is, uh, is Calvinists and Arminians. Those are the words for it. The Calvinists are going to believe in predestination through and through. Predestination, by the way, is not a Calvinistic idea. It's Paul's idea. That word is in your Bible that Paul uses. Paul's writing under divine inspiration by the Holy Spirit. So really, it's God's idea, right? But what we have when we, when we slide all the way over into this Calvinistic side is we, we, what we like to do is we like to put on our own moral badge, right? And we start to go, well, I could never imagine a God who would plan that people would go to hell, right? That's the conversation that we end up having. And, and my encouragement right off the bat of this is, man, how very morally superior of you to take a morally superior stance over God and start lobbying accusations his way. Well, I could never serve a God who, and I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Your brain weighs three and a half pounds. He spoke and the universe came out, <laughs> Right? But some pitfalls over here on the Calvinist side of the equation, really, we, we see that, um, okay, man, if God has totally just already chosen, then like, why am I preaching right now? Why am I saying these things? Why, why, where's the mission that we're supposed to be called into? If God's already just picked, there's team hell and there's team heaven, and there you have it, then what's the point of all of this right now? That's the pitfall you can fall into with this side of things. But then you come over into Arminianism and Arminius would say, man, God in his foreknowledge is looking through time and he's seeing who is going to choose him. And the problem I have with that side of the equation is what that's really saying is that, God, that man is ultimately the author and the, the, the person responsible for their salvation. That God's not really, it's not really up to God. God's just looking through time to see how we're going to choose. And then all of a sudden, man is in the driving seat of their own salvation. So here, here's what you have. You have the Calvinists over here. You have Arminius over here. And then you just have these people in the middle that we would just call Christians, right? That's a little bit of a joke, a tongue in cheek. They're both Christians, okay? Relax. I feel like you guys are like a little like mad already this morning. And you just got to like lighten up because we're just leaning all the way into this tension this morning. That's the goal. And then we're going to fall back onto some bedrock, just foundational truths that we still know as we explore the mystery. Because it is a mystery, isn't it? As soon as we say, man, uh, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? What's the answer? Yes. yes. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. yes. 
We actually see uh, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter four, the first time God promises he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart is before the plagues even happen. So Moses is encountering the Lord at the burning bush and God is giving Moses these signs, these miracles to go show Pharaoh, to go show him that he is God. And this is what he says in Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And then what does he say? But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It's pretty tough. I mean, like it's there, it's there. And so we have some tension that it's like, man, okay, wait, who is this God that is making these demands of Pharaoh, but yet he's already predetermining how he's going to respond to them, but yet he's still holding him accountable to them. We have these questions. And I think a lot of people, especially as they wrestle maybe young in their faith or before they're believing, have this kind of question. Like, man, how could a good God destine people for destruction? And this is the tension that we're going to step in today. Exodus really is what I, like, I didn't want to dodge it. We could have just gone right into the plagues and we could have just kind of missed this phrase that shows up several times throughout Exodus 4 through 14. Here's all the times we see it. About 10 times through Exodus, we're going to see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those are all the instances. You can take a picture. I'd encourage you, go read through them, study them on your own. But then we also see about 10 times that there are 10 mentions that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. We're not really sure the object of the hardening. We just know that either Pharaoh himself, some are explicit that, that Pharaoh grew stubborn, that he grew bitter, and that his heart was hardened by himself. Other times it just says that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. We're not really sure who did it. But here's what's unmistakably clear. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Enter the mystery. We're going to read in Romans chapter 9. Um, and this Romans chapter 9, just so you know, this is Calvinist. This is going to be Calvinist's favorite chapter of Scripture. Okay? Calvinism would be like, yeah, of course, uh, the whole Bible is, is all good. It's all God's Word. But Romans chapter 9 is right here, baby. Like, it's on top. It is the most important. Arminians are going to read it, and they're going to read it with like a black permanent marker and just say, no, Romans chapter 9 just doesn't exist. You know? And so here's, again, where do we want to be? We want to be walking on the road that is going to have two miles of ditch. For every mile of road that you walk on, there's two miles of ditch. Do you get that? So we don't want to fall off on one side or the other. What we want to do is we want to walk on this road called faith. It has some questions. It has some mystery in it, but we want to explore what God's word says, because here's, here's what we have to be, just be really careful of before we read Romans chapter nine. We don't want to let our feelings or our predispositions in us. We don't want to let those define what Scripture is saying. We want to let Scripture bear its weight on us. So before we ever come with some sort of like, well, I just can't imagine a God who would, or like, I just, what do you mean God would do that? And I'm just like, hold on, before we say any of that, God's word has spoken. Our job then is to try and understand what it says. Amen? Amen. The other thing that I want to say before we read Romans chapter 9 is this, this is uh, in nature, the, the doctrine of salvation, okay? How we are saved um, is in the open hand in a theological category. So let me kind of explain what I mean. There are close-handed beliefs, as in if you believe this, that is what makes you a Christian, okay? The Bible is the inerrant word of God. If you move off of that point and you start to say that, no, really the Bible is just kind of a good story. It's not the inerrant word of God. I would say you have moved off of being a Christian. You're no longer a Christian. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, all these things. That is, that is a close-handed theological belief. You have to believe that to be a Christian. You have to believe that God is triune in nature. 
Yes, there is this mystery and note the word Trinity does not appear in your Bible, but the theme of it is everywhere. If you start to question the Trinity, you become like different areas of of, uh, cults or things like that that would say, well, Jesus wasn't really God. Well, here's the problem. If Jesus wasn't really God, if God is not trying to nature, present as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if Jesus himself isn't God, then when he died on the cross, he accomplished nothing because he was just another dude. He was just another martyr killed for what he believed in. But when we start to understand that Jesus is God, and we start to also look at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, that's another thing that's in the closed hand of theology that we see that, no, because Jesus was God, stepped down from heaven, that's, by the way, what makes Christianity different than every other religion. Jesus came down, every other religion is trying to say, and man should build themselves up to heaven. But as Jesus lived a perfect life, died, was the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world, was buried and resurrected, and now calls us into that resurrection life. That is what makes us distinctly Christian. But then we have this other category of theology. Theology just meaning the study of God. Okay, in this other camp, we can have, uh, should women be in ministry? There's going to be people who argue about this until Jesus comes back. Like, we're just going to keep on fighting about it. You know what I mean? Well, okay, uh, then there's people who say, well, to baptize people, we should really sprinkle infants or we should dunk adults. Then there's people who dunk infants. And I'm just like, that just, that does not seem like a good idea. Can we all agree on that? But man, like people who believe the, the Holy Spirit has ceased moving in a way that he moved in the Bible. People, who, we'd call them cessationalists. People, then the other people on the other side of that uh, coin would say, no, the Holy Spirit, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still alive and active today. They're continuationalists. But again, like, we can, we can kind of play with the fact that it's like, man, we just disagree and we fight about these things all day long while we cling to these things, amen? But as we cling to these, we, we fight about these and, and like, it's not really a joke because this is what every denomination ever, this is why we have denominations. Because it's just like all this splitting, all this disagreeing and no, oh my gosh, you, you believe tongues, I don't believe tongues, you baptize this way, oh, and it just goes round and round and then churches split over this kind of stuff, Right? So again, um, what I want to say is this is an open-handed belief. You can either be a Calvinist, you can be an Arminian. What I want to challenge you with is, is your secondary theology generating a fruitfulness in your life that would line up with Scripture? Because this is the big question for me, is people love to try and just get lost in the weeds of this conversation. And what I want to ask is like, yeah, what are you doing for Jesus though? Because I've met a lot of really stuffy Calvinists who are just like, oh my gosh, well, you know, let's just sit around and talk as the elect do. And let's just debate all these five points and really talk about these five points and talk about how dumb Arminians are and all that stuff. I'm like, is that, is your theology generating a fruitfulness in your life that matches what the Bible's calling you into? Are you, are you aligning with the mission of God going on in this world right now? Or are you just sitting around a, thea- a table talking theology? Listen, I love sitting around a table and talking theology. I've spent plenty of hours trying to wrap my brain around this topic. But what I've concluded is that God is God. He spoke and made everything. And the best analogy that I could come in to start this sermon with was a Moana analogy. (laughs) That's just the level that my brain's on. Then you have Arminian people who would just get so wounded and broken by the fact that God would actually have a place called hell and people would go there that all of a sudden they start to misrepresent who God really is. And that's not where we want to be either. So is your theology, especially on these secondary issues, is it generating a faithfulness and a fruitfulness to the God of the Bible, even while you work out some things with a bit of mystery? That's what we're, that's what we're looking for. So Romans chapter 9 starting in verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
by no means. He's talking about this idea of predestination. And it's kind of the first question that I think a lot of people have when you start to talk about predestination. They're like, isn't that unjust for a God to actually predetermine who's going to go where? Paul's answer is by no means. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is where we're coming back into our Exodus story for a moment. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Not really a lot of wiggle room there. Pharaoh was brought up so that God could look glorious. And I believe there is something distinct about the, the character of Pharaoh, the person Pharaoh, where what God is doing with Pharaoh is not just what he's doing with you and me right now. What he's doing with Pharaoh is he's actually liberating his people to, sh to, to complete really Israel's like redemptive arc to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. And he's gonna liberate them and free them so that he could also extend his salvation then to the world. And so is it fair that God would use Pharaoh as an instrument to bring about this good news for everyone? Is that just? Yes, it is. Because listen to me, Pharaoh was already evil and broken. It's, it's not called mercy because you already deserve something. Do you get that? It's mercy because you deserved none of it. And yet God poured it out for you. So he says, I'll, um, I'll have mercy on whom I have for this very reason. Sorry. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, what does he, um, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? I think we can all just take that phrase right there and we can tuck it in our pocket for this morning. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? See, a lot of us, we wanna act like the moral police as soon as we start having this argument, right? And we start to lob accusations and lob things towards God and go, no, 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 hold on. He is God. I am not. What, uh, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Um, why have you made me like this? Like, like, a, like a potter would take a lump of clay and form it however he's going to want to form it. This is what Paul's saying. To make out of the same lump one vessel, for, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Um, God was patient with Pharaoh, was he not? Let's put it this way. Let me, let me pretend for just a second that your kid is being held hostage. Your kid is having violence executed upon them. Your kid is having their babies and their livelihood destroyed and murdered by a man. How many of you are giving that dude 10 warnings before you roll up to his house? Oh, come on. Like seriously, I've, some of you, I know I've seen the second amendment stickers on your car. You know what I'm saying? You'd be, it'd be over one time, no warning. Thank you very much. Make my day policy. You know, God's patient. God is long suffering. See, we can't use this argument to start lobbying accusations against God's character. He's merciful. He is just. His love is steadfast. He's patient with those who are wicked towards him. All of these things are true. Gift um, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So again, 
I'm just stepping us into the tension today and I'll show you kind of where I land and then hopefully what we'll end with is some just kind of bedrock things that reassures all of our souls. But for now, I wanna just lean on the tension a little bit. That is as Calvinistic of a passage as we get. But there's more passages like that. In Ephesians chapter one, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So how much did you do to earn your salvation? Nothing. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. In love, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. How good of news is all of that passage? And yet we get hung up on this idea of predestination. We miss the fact that no, God has, he's forgiven our trespasses. Like God knows everything about you and he's chosen to move towards you and he's chosen to offer his forgiveness to you. He's lavished upon his grace in all of his wisdom and all of his insight. He's working a plan out in the world that we're living in. There's so much good news here in Ephesians chapter one to get stuck on that first, that word predestination. There's just too much. But in John 15, five, we read this from Jesus' words. I am the vine, he says, you are but the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some stuff that you're good at. You can kind of just work your job and you can do your own thing and you can wake yourself up in the morning. No, like apart from him, there's nothing that you can do. Can you save yourself apart from him? No, no. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. In John chapter 11, we're going to read this story about Lazarus, right? Lazarus is physically dead when Jesus shows up. Everyone's like, you're too late. He's already dead. In fact, they're like, he's so dead that he stinks now. I think the actual, like in King James, it's like he stinketh, you know, it's like some awesome word like that. And Lazarus represents physically us spiritually, that Paul echoes in Ephesians chapter two, but you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but you have been made alive together in Christ. So this, this reality that like, what do dead people do to save themselves? Nothing, nothing. God initiates, God moves, God begins. God calls Lazarus come forth and that's what brings him into life. Romans 8, 9, 29 and 30. Um, and this is one that, you know, we hear this one and I, again, I just want to remind you and I'm showing you these verses to show you that there is such, such good news in these passages. We don't have to be scared of this topic. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, this is the golden chain of redemption. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So God has a plan for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. He has this plan for your life. He's calling you into those plans. And as he's calling you, what he's doing is he's justifying you. You could also turn that word in the word righteousfied. I just love that. 
Like he's made you righteous. He's put the righteousness that was on his son and he's put it on you. And he's not gonna cease this work until you've been glorified, until you step into heaven fully perfect, remade the way that you were designed to be, the world redesigned the way that it's supposed to be. This verse is not bad news. It's good news. It's amazing news that God is using imperfect vessels to accomplish his perfect will. Amen? So that's, these are the Calvinist verses. There's more verses. We could stay on here for a while, but there's also, here's the problem with just landing fully rigidly on Calvinism. It, there's just the rest of the Bible that we have to read. Do you know what I mean? Because I can feel a lot of you right now, you're like, ah, like make this better, you know? And here's, I just, again, stepping into the wrestle. Second Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligence. Tell me what need is diligence if you've already been elected to go to heaven? Why, why these commands to persist, to strive, to toil on in your faith if God just already determined you're going to go to heaven? Couldn't we just wait until everything goes down and then we all get to go? But no, Peter writes, uh, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice, you do, you act, you use your will, your freedom, the, the things that you can choose to do, and you align it with the kingdom of God. To confirm your calling and election, practice these qualities. You will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Some of you are in a season and it just feels like the Lord is being slow to fulfill his promise. But God is working in his time and he does not count slowness the way that we do but he's using his time and he's waiting and he's being patient toward us. Why? Why is he being patient? Not wishing that any should perish. So God is literally waiting on his re-arrival onto the earth to bring out this final judgment. He's waiting for what purpose? So that more people would reach repentance. So he's, there's this act here where he's not wishing, God is not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. The, the, the two lines that we're going to have as God, as God initiates a call in our life is we're going to have this ability to repent, turn towards him as he's calling, and we're going to be able to confess this ongoing ethic of confession and repentance that we just walk in. Jeremiah 18, 8, if that nation, if the nation of Israel concerning with which I've spoken turns from their evil if that nation turns from evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. It seems to hear there's some responsibility on Israel's end, on our end, that if we would just give in and lay down our will, lay down our autonomy and say, Jesus, you rule, you reign, you be the director of my life. If we would just reach that moment of surrender, then what God's saying is there is no longer any judgment that's gonna go towards you. And there's this choice. There's this responsibility. If they turn from evil, I will relent. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. See, here's the, here's the Arminian pitfall, I think, is that Arminians would love to believe that we have an autonomous will that exists outside of the will of God. But right here, what it shows is that God is looking to work in us so that our will, our desires would align with his will and his desire. 
So, you know, people are like, oh, I just, you know, I'm going to do me and I'm going I'm to be my own God and I'm going to live my own life like YOLO and, and I'm the director. I'm going to be the captain of my own destiny. Thank you very much. And I just like am constantly like, my goodness, how is that working out for you? I, like, I don't know about you guys. It's probably not true for you because you're amazing. But like um, all of the mistakes, all of the things that have gone wrong in my life, all the things that I've struggled with or had troubles with, you know what they all have in common? Me. And it's the same for you, is it not? That man, if, we, if God would just leave, that would be almost equally as evil for him just leave us to our own natural devices and just choose our own way. Because then man, nobody's gonna seek for God, the psalmist says. Not, not one, not one is after him. We're all born into this iniquity. We're all born into sin. We have our own selfish desires. We're gonna follow after him. But God is so gracious and so kind to extend his call, isn't he? I love Thomas Aquinas, uh, an old Catholic priest, just to kind of throw in all the, uh, you know, debate and all the frustration this morning, you know? Uh, Catholic priest from like the 1200s, great theologian, great thinker. He says, man, of course, has free will. Man has free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would all be in vain. When you think about that, think about all the commands in scripture, all the urgency in scripture to do, to follow, to heed counsel, to take advice, to don't do this thing, do this so that you get a reward. There, there is a concept woven throughout scripture that what you sow into the ground, you will reap. What you sow into your life, you will reap. If that does not communicate the responsibility of man, I don't know what does. But no, like all of this has been given. And if we didn't have free will, it would be in vain, be worthless, it'd be meaningless. So two stories, two stories of scripture to kind of explain to you how I think this mystery in some way works itself out. But let me be clear. People have been fighting over this for 1,500 years who are incredibly brilliant. And again, I used a Moana analogy to start this sermon. Okay? If you look at the rich young ruler, you can read about the rich young ruler's encounter with Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Mark chapter 10, what we see is this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you must keep the law. And he's like, I've really, I've, I've done, man, I'm actually pretty awesome at that. Like I've kept the law since my youth. And is, he's like, is there anything else? And it says that Jesus looked upon him with love. Please notice that everything that God does is motivated by the core character of who he is, which is love. Jesus looks on the rich young ruler in love. And he says, okay, then go and sell everything that you have and follow me. And the man can't do it, right? He walks away sad is what we're told. And in that moment, here's what I believe happened. God called. He said, you want to follow me? Here's what you must do. And in that moment, he rejected that call. Does God in his infinite wisdom allow people to reject his call? Absolutely. Romans chapter one shows us that creation itself is bearing witness about who Jesus is, about who God is. His creative nature is evident for all to see. But we um, harden our hearts. We turn away from him. We suppress the reality of who he is. And in his wisdom, what does he do when we do that? He says, Okay. And one of the scarier parts of scripture is Romans chapter one, where it says, and God will give you up to your debased thinking as in God will let you go. Right? The other story that we can turn to is in um, Acts, Acts, um, oh man, I'm blanking. I think it's Acts chapter nine. Saul is on his way um, to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus to do what? 
is not a missionary at this point. He's not handing out tracts by any means. He's trying to torture and persecute the church of Jesus Christ. He hates followers of Jesus, hates followers of the way. He wants to see them imprisoned and killed and beaten for what they're doing. They're abandoning the law. They're abandoning his Jewish custom. And they're following after this Jesus guy who we just killed for saying that he was God. And so he hates the church. He's following them. And how many of you know, Saul on his way on the road to Damascus, like Jesus just shows up and kicks that dude off his horse, right? This light blinds him. He falls off his horse. Um, and then he like, he can't see. It's like, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He gets this call from heaven. And reformed guys love to point to this story to see, 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 Paul didn't have a choice. And I'm like, man, but listen, then Jesus gave Paul the option. He said, now go into this city and be obedient to me. So at, listen, this is the best way that I can possibly describe this mystery to you is God clearly initiates in a relationship with us. We are not just doing awesome. You are not just rolling in like your own morality that's just so awesome that God's like, I could really use you on my team. Get on in here. That's not how it works. But God graciously extends a call. He initiates a relationship with us and the responsibility is then on our end to respond to it. And some people have this dramatic encounter with the Lord where it's like, oh my gosh, he just showed up in this brilliant way. Others people like, I mean, like me, I just was hanging out at church because I liked a girl. And the whole time God was like, oh, that's so cute. You dumb guy. Like, you know, like you just put a pretty girl and you're just like, oh, you know, coming into church. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, like I was just experiencing, I would have never had language for this, but I was experiencing the effectual call of God in my heart. That God was just doing whatever it took to just draw me to himself. And the kindness of God that I was just in outright rebellion to him and to his lordship and to his kingdom. I didn't want anything to do with him. I just wanted this pretty girl. And he was just like, yeah, come on in here. Come on, I've got a plan for you. And he's got a call. See, this is, this is the great mystery that we get called into. And again, if you want to skip over the hard parts of the story, if you want to just skip all the scary scenes in the Bible, you're welcome to, but I think you're going to miss the beauty of the redemptive parts. That somehow in this story, what we lose track of is God has uh, very explicitly predetermined one person to die. Do you know who that was? Jesus. That Jesus was put on this earth really for one thing. That was to be the the... the to be the Passover lamb, which we're going to read about in a couple weeks. That because of Jesus and his shed blood, because he lived this perfect life and God killed him, that we now get to experience the forgiveness and the redemption from our sin. Amen? So listen, this is a mystery. We work it out. But there are a few things that even while we understand, man, God is, God is way more complex. Is it Calvinist? Like some of you are going to go, okay, man, I'm totally Calvinist. Some of you are going to go, I'm totally Arminian. A lot of you are just going to go like, yeah, I'm just going to keep arguing with friends over coffee about this until I die. You know, that's the category that I'm in. Just like full disclosure, I probably lean a little more on this reform side, uh, not because I think that I'm the smartest or I'm the best, but because of the exact opposite of that. And I just go, man, you know what? Uh, God, you can just do whatever it is that you want to do. And then I, I, a lot of other people, like if Kent were standing right up here, he would probably say, you know, I just, I lean just over to the Arminian side. I'm not in the ditch over here, but I lean over on this side. Because after his study of scripture, study of the story, he just goes, no, I think man, man's got to take responsibility for responding to this call. And I think because of who we are as a church, that we live in this kind of desire star tension. If you've taken step one, if you shouldn't, you should go. But that we want to be this kind of tension between uh, evangelicals and charismatics that we just invite some of you in here who are like, oh yes, they preach the Bible. They must be reformed. It's like, hold on hold on. Like I maybe, I maybe lean that way, but man, there's just, there's tension all over. And the worst thing that we can do is create these kind of false dichotomies where it's either choose A or B, no in between, where we got to say, no, we got to live with some tension in both. 
in both. But there are a few implications of God's sovereignty that can give us actually just this like core fundamental bedrock trust in who God is and what he's done. The first thing is that um, as we approach God's sovereignty, one thing that we should know for sure is that we should be reassured of our relationship with Jesus. Listen, because some of you still struggle with stuff and, and you let that struggle give you cause for concern over whether you really are the elect, you know, whether you really believe in God. Um, is he really there? Is he really saving stuff? Um, but listen, we read it in Ephesians chapter one. God chose you before the foundation of the world. God has a plan for your life. God loves you. God has chosen you. He's called you. And I think Ephesians 1.13 is one of the most reassuring things that we can read after we read all of this other stuff in Ephesians where he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, a lot of you have made that choice. You've made that decision. You heard the gospel preached at one point. You said, okay, I believe in this. I'm laying down my life so that you can rule and you can reign in me. You were sealed then at that moment with the promised Holy Spirit. Listen to me, the Holy Spirit, if you are still experiencing sin and you want to break from that sin, that's the Holy Spirit bringing you conviction to come into alignment with the kingdom of God to come into alignment with God's plan for your life. And, and that Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, who's coming inside of you and offering that conviction is doing that as a seal of your guarantee that you belong to God. So if you're still wrestling, if there's still a faith in you, even if it's not this like robust, brilliant faith, but if you're still struggling a little bit, man, the Holy Spirit is still sealed you for the day of eternity. Amen. That should be one of the things that we just take heart in that as, man, okay, I don't understand how all this works, but if we're encountering the Lord, if we're experiencing the Holy Spirit in some way, that is our seal, our guarantee, our proof of our inheritance that is to come. Um, the next one, I think that it should compel our mission. As we start to understand and embrace God's sovereign lordship, it really should compel our mission. On the Calvinist side, it's like, man, you don't, you don't know who the elect are. You don't know who God's predestined. You're not him. And so our, our job is to, is to serve and to love and to tell the story of what God has done. It's God's job to save. Amen? Amen. Listen, okay, some of you, I didn't say this first service. Some of you have wayward children right now and you're wondering if they're ever gonna come back. Can I just remind you, it is not your job to save them. You can love them. You can serve them. You can be faithful to tell the stories about what God has done in your life, but it's God who's going to call in their life and they're going to have to embrace that call. But it compels our mission because even wherever you land on this, we got to go, okay, um, I'm not going to let my theology, my secondary issue, my secondary matter of theology and open-handed belief, I'm not going to let that um, lead to me not getting involved in the redemption that God's trying to do in the world. So listen, I'm like, I'm all, again, I'm all for getting some coffee and just kind of wrestling around this topic with somebody, but don't, don't live there. Don't live there. Man, Cause eventually like our call is not to just sit around coffee tables and argue about the five points of tulip. You know what I mean? That's not what we're supposed to do. Like our job. Okay. Land somewhere, land somewhere, land. And then that, listen, go tell the story of what Jesus has done. I've just met way too many like reformed guys who just want to sit around and argue about whether, you know, John Piper, Matt Chant, like, and they just, not, not those guys. I'm saying those preachers, guys want to like sit down like way less cool guys want to sit around coffee and they just want to argue about stuff that those guys have said. I'm like, how adorable. Go out and do your own thing. God is, God is called and he's equipped and he's gifted you church to go out and participate in his mission in this world. 
Let's not get lost. Let's not live in this spot where we just like want to fight all the time about like these secondary theological things. There's a, there's a dying world of people who are going to go to hell and they need to hear the good news of the gospel. Amen? Last thing, as it compels our mission, um, Jen, you can just go ahead to that third one there, um, is that I believe that this news of God's sovereignty demands a response from us. It demands a response from us. Um, in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you can wrestle with your kind of questions about who God is and is he good if he's allowing and fill in the blank there with whatever you want to fill it in. But ultimately, um, I think way too often we like to use this conversation to deflect us going, hey, you know what? Let's, you can ask about what's going on in Pharaoh's heart, but here's the more important question. What's happening in your heart? What's happening in you? Are, are you cold to the things of God? Have you hardened your heart to him because you're creating these kind of scenarios and are you just distancing yourself from him even though he's clearly shown his grace, clearly showed his love, clearly showed his kindness to you and you want to get wrapped around the axle on something that it's like, no, hold on. God, God has done all this good stuff for you and he's called you and you know that. Don't let your heart grow hard. See, because I think, I mean, there's several things that I think can harden our heart, even as believers. We can live with unrepentant sin. Like you can kind of just keep living and keep entertaining something that's happening in the dark. And, and I think that's going to deaden the voice of God in your life. It's not going to deaden God's love for you. Let's be clear about that. But it is going to deaden your ability to listen to him and hear him, what he's trying to speak to you. Uh, I, think we can, I think we can neglect things that God's clearly given us to do. God gives you assignments. God gives you a call. God says, he speaks and he says, go. And he says, he do different things, whatever it might be. And we just ignore it. I think you can harden your heart to the activity of God that he's trying to do in your life. And, and I think you can also, um, you can do all that stuff and, or you can, just, you can just not care. You can just grow really apathetic and you can just get really comfortable and you can just go, man, okay, God's clearly done all this awesome stuff. Like the Lord of heaven and earth has spoken to me, called my name, called me out of a grave. And then you just go, huh. No, no, let's just watch the Broncos today, right? Like it's a little dig at the people skipping church to watch the Bronco game, you know? It's fine. God still loves them just like he loves you and me. There's no one can boast because God saves. Amen? Amen. Amen. But we just get comfortable and we get complacent. And I think that can harden our hearts and we can start to get numb to the things that God's doing in this world. And so church, like, like the question, again, as we step into these plagues, as we walk into these plagues, um, there's a hard part of the story to wrestle around. But as we wrestle, what we're going to see is we're going to see the beauty of the redemption because God is coming this whole time to save broken, busted up people like you and me. That's who he loves. That's who he calls. It's his only option is to save these people who are hurting, save these people who are in sin, who are in pain, who are in bondage. And that's what we're going to read about over the next couple of weeks. And the question though, that I want you to leave you lingering with today is not, not what is God going to do with Pharaoh's heart? It's what are you doing with your heart? What are you doing with your heart? Let's stand and pray. God, I pray all over the room that we would, I pray that we would just get lost in your majesty and your wonder, that we would really just consider what it would look like to step into the throne room of God and to look upon you face to face. And if we really would have any kind of like morally superior stances to take in that moment. 
God, as, as the church, as people who've already made the decision to follow after you, maybe people who don't even really wrestle with this so much, but I pray that we would, I pray that we would take your word seriously and that we would endeavor after you and that we would uh, do this like partnering with you where we watch the Holy Spirit bring things to life and we respond to the call that you have for us and we'll get pulled deeper and deeper all the while into more faith. I pray for people who are a little stagnant right now. I pray that they would really have the honesty to, to look in the mirror and say, okay, God, why is this here? God can handle your wrestle. God can handle your wrestle. And I pray that we'd be faithful enough to give it to him today. For anyone who's here today and they're just kind of going, okay, how do I know if God's chosen me? I just think this is pretty good objective evidence that you're hearing this right now, that God loves you. He has a plan for your life. He's for you. He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, that you can be with him. God right now, I believe, is calling you to him. My question is, how are you going to respond? the best response that you could possibly give a God who is infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, is just say, okay, I trust you with my life, Lord. I lay it down and give it to you. I pray that you would empower all of us to go out and to, to not just kind of get crusty or stuffy in our theology, but would we see that you have a mission field out there for us as we step out these doors today? Help us see the people in our workplace that are hurting. Help us see the people at the grocery store, kids, uh, parents at our at their games that we're at this week. God, wherever we find ourselves, I pray that we would look for and participate in your mission because you have called people, you have spoken to people. And would we call forth that plan that you have for their life? Would we partner with you in that, Jesus? We love you and we're thankful for today. It's in your name we pray, amen. 